Hi, and welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Since the last episode was released, a lot of rockets were launched by Russia. My home city, Odessa, was attacked, including one rocket that destroyed a big cathedral in the city center. The Dnipro city was attacked, as well as the Sumy region, the Kharkiv region, and other Ukrainian regions. A lot of civilians were killed or injured just in these two weeks. But I want to devote this episode to something that happened exactly one year ago from the date when I'm recording this, the Olenivka massacre. That's when Russia burnt alive more than 50 prisoners of war that it was keeping in prison barracks near the Alenivka village on the occupied territory of Ukraine. There have clearly been some messages sneaked out from Alenivka to the outside world through the Telegram app. We haven't been able to verify them, but what they say is that in late July, prisoners were put to work converting an abandoned building on the industrial side of the prison that Nina mentioned, about three or 400 metres from where prisoners were normally kept. It was unusual because it had never happened before and there didn't seem to be any need for it. As the end of July approached, about 200 members of the Azov Regiment, and apparently only Azov soldiers, were moved to the new barracks. Around the same time, satellite images began to show what appeared to be some large holes being dug in the earth inside the prison fence. Nobody can say what for. And that's how things stood as darkness fell on July the 29th until 11 o'clock when the prisoners in the regular barracks heard what's been described to us as an explosion and dozens upon dozens of prisoners of war died in the flames. Who lit the match or primed the bomb that killed them, we don't know. But look at everything that was said and done in the space of not much more than two months from the siege of Mariupol to the fire at Alenivka. The men who died were demonised, dehumanised, sent to a brutal camp run by security police and set apart where nobody could see what would happen to them. At the end of all that, when you hear that they died, it doesn't sound surprising. It sounds obvious. This was a clip from an excellent episode by the Slow Newscast. I'll leave the link to the full episode in the show notes, which you can listen to and forward even to your non-bioinformatics friends. And now, please join me for a moment of silence to honor the memory of the defenders of Ukraine who died tragically in Olenivka. Слава Україні! 
And now, on to the bioinformatics. Today, I'm presenting you my interview with Emily Stein. This episode was recorded on February 23rd, 2022, just the day before the full-scale war on Ukraine was started. And uh, I introduced Emily as an assistant professor, but I think she's an associate professor now. So congrats, Emily. And uh, in the episode, Emily talks about using AlphaFold to predict whether a protein mutation is destabilizing or not. My guest today is Emily Stein. Emily is an assistant professor at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about your um, scientific background and about your interests. What what do you do? My background education-wise is that I studied um, bioinformatics in a computer science department in the University of Tübingen. So I came heavily from sort of almost theoretical computer science, like algorithm development and improved. Then did my PhD in Barcelona in the Institute for Research in Biomedicine, where I worked in the Structural, bio uh, structural Computational Biology and Network Biology group with Patrick Alloy. And there, I mean, coming from computer science, that was already quite a change because there I did basically only, you know, what a computer scientist would call applied research. So I wrote programs to look at structures of proteins, but it wasn't like, you know, serious algorithm development in the computer science sense. It was very interesting. I enjoyed it a lot. But I also felt like, well, I would like, you know, to get more insight into this whole wet lab side of things. So when I moved on to do a postdoc in the in UCSF in San Francisco with Tanya Gortema, I asked to also do some, well, I, I picked a project that had a, a wet lab component. And so I spent some time at the bench cloning making mutants and um, running them through big screens to see, well, what phenotype will this change result in? And at sort of, well, not quite the same time, but alternatingly, also again, time at the computer developing code to analyze this data. And I also, because Tanya's lab works a lot with um, the Rosetta software, so I got into that and into the Rosetta community and those developments. And that was really something I also enjoyed very much. And so afterwards, when I moved to Copenhagen, where I first worked with Kristen Lindof Larsen and then started my own group. I kept, essentially, I kept doing both of those things, which is really nice. So I kept both the Rosetta angle and they started to look more and more into disease-associated changes in proteins. So when there's a single point variant, we're interested in finding out, is this variant going to have a consequence for the person carrying it? Or is it just, you know, a more or less neutral change that's benign, certainly as far as healthcare is concerned and health risks. And so we found that with Rosetta and also Foldex, which is another tool to evaluate such changes on the basis of their crystal structure, we could do quite well in terms of for a number of variants that our collaborators tested in the lab, we were able to also show computationally that these would likely be destabilized. And so this matched to, to, to our, from our perspective, it matched the, um, the observations pretty well. 
Can you tell us more about this Rosetta project? Absolutely. Um, the Rosetta project came out of David Baker's lab, which is at the University of Washington in Seattle. And that it was actually started by a ro rotation student, essentially, in the lab that had the idea, oh, we could, we, you know, it, it started out of the problem of protein structure prediction in the early 2000s. And so the main question was, well, what, what are some tricks we could try that hadn't been tried yet at the time? And so the student had the idea of using fragments of other proteins, so essentially taking the PDB, the protein data bank, and generating lots of small fragments out of those, and then picking fragments similar to the sequence of the protein of interest, and putting those together to help figure out what structure might this new sequence that we're interested in adopt. And so that was the, the origin of Rosetta that then took CASP in a storm, one of the much earlier CASPs. Um, and out of that came a number of other developments that are sort of um, based around the same code. So there, by now, the Rosetta source code has, I think, three million lines order of magnitude. So it's really big. And it's developed by a number of labs around the world. Many of these labs have been, have had, so the PI of many of these labs has been either in David's lab or in one of the labs that came out of David's lab. So Tanya did a postdoc with David, and then I did a postdoc with Tanya, and so now I also have a Rosetta lab. So this is how it's been propagating. And so I guess the thing that Rosetta is perhaps most well known for is protein design. So the question of can we make a new protein that has a desired structure or a desired function, or ideally both. And the the code, the core of the programs and libraries that's used for this um, from sequence to structure problem in Rosetta is the same that's also used for design. In a sense, for design, you need it to be a bit more complicated because you suddenly need the ability to swap out some side chains for others. But um, sort of con conceptually, you know, there's a lot of, oh, we build on what we know from the PDB, from fragments, for example and from um, potentials derived from observations made on especially high resolution structures. And then we combine that with information that is taken from physics, for example, from some of the well-known force fields. So in its essence, would you say that Rosetta occupies roughly the same niche as AlphaFold2, which is like protein folding and protein prediction? I would say it, it has a broader niche because it does a lot more things. To me, Rosetta is, is a, a bit of a multi-headed hydra in that it can do very many things. Of course, it's entirely possible that you know the AlphaFold people are also going into some of those directions. So certainly when, when Rosetta started out, then yes, it occupied the same niche that AlphaFold does now, I would say. But it has acquired many more functions along the way that at least right now AlphaFold is, is not occupying. And then I assume like at some point you heard about AlphaFold, right? And what, what was your initial thoughts, initial reaction? Well, I guess the first time I heard about AlphaFold, it was when, uh, what I mean, now we just call it AlphaFold, but this is somewhat technically AlphaFold 2. 
And the first Alpha Fold came out two years prior to this, so now more than three years ago. And at that point, I think I and, and many people in this field already felt like, oh, this is, you know, this is a serious development. This is going, going to have a big impact. I didn't expect it to be to have that massive impact that fast. So in, in that sense, that's surprising. But the fact um, that it had this impact in itself, I think, isn't at least to me, isn't so surprising. It's more the speed, really, of this revolution that has happened. Because I think even when the first version came out, it was already clear that there is a lot of potential. And given that Rosetta, as you said, can do more things, but one of the things that it does is protein folding. And and we also have AlphaFold and AlphaFold2 now, which I assume are better, is it safe to say, at, at it? I think right now, yes. Could it be somehow incorporated, like could Rosetta still do those other functions, but using AlphaFold's folding algorithm to improve its results? I think in in a number of labs, that's in practice what's happening already. It's not sort of in a fully integrated way. And it might be difficult, you know, to sort of make one package that has this for, I mean, mainly sort of licensing questions and maybe also some other more practical aspects. But um, it's definitely happening that, for example, labs that want to do protein design do what we call forward folding with AlphaFold now, so that they used to do with Rosetta. So say you make a design, so you come up with a new sequence and say, oh, I think this sequence will, you know, adopt this particular structure that I'm interested in. And then to sort of, well, confirm that still in silico before taking too many things into the lab. Um, people used to just give this sequence to Rosetta of initial folding and have it predict that structure. And now this is, this is often done by AlphaFold. And that seems to work pretty well from what I've, I haven't done it myself directly, but um, what I hear from multiple people is that this works quite well. And that of course it is extremely fast, which is a very nice advantage when you're in this cycle of let's design something, see if it works or go back to improvements. You said that you are interested in the impact of uh, point mutations, right? Um, so how does that workflow look like with, with Rosetta? So if using Rosetta, we start from, or say prior to having AlphaFold available, what we would need is the protein of interest and a crystal structure of that protein. And then we would, as a first step, slightly relax the structure within the Rosetta force field. That's a very common step, pretty much no matter which force field or program you work with, because each program has their own sort of settings, how close atoms can be. And so after this relaxation, if you opened both of those structures in your favorite, favorite viewer, say Pymol, they would look identical. But to the program, they can have quite drastic differences in energy, because if two atoms are slightly too close, that creates a horrible clash. And the difference between slightly too close and just fine is invisible to us, but it's a big thing for the program. And so that this equilibration is something we do as a first step. And then what we often do 
because we have developed the workflow for it and that's sort of the most convenient often is saturation mutagenesis so we take each position in the protein and at each position we substitute every of the 19 other amino acids and calculate the change in energy and so out of that we get essentially a map telling us oh for each position and for each of the 20 amino acids this is how much of an effect on stability we have and the the protocol within rosetta because as i said before it has sort of a lot of different applications and so the protocol we use for that is the cartesian ddg protocol we've benchmarked a bunch of this a number of flavors of those delta delta g calculation protocols even within rosetta and we've benchmarked them some time back and found that this one is the one that works the best certainly in our hands compared to experimental data and yes then we have this map that tells us oh that's all the changes in energy and then we compare that to what's known about changes in this protein either experimentally especially if we have a collaboration on it or from the literature and in that case often we look at are any of those variants known to be pathogenic or benign so pathogenic would be that they cause disease and then we find quite often that there is a strong predicted impact also on their stability at the end are you more interested in this uh, quantity the delta delta g or are you more interested in the like actual predicted shape of, of the protein and how different it is from the natural shape? The pragmatic take for most situations is that we look at the delta delta G. And even as far as the delta delta G is concerned, there's certainly some level of error or, or uncertainty that we can't necessarily quantify with calculations because of the way, but so the way these calculations are done is that it's only ever sampling local changes. So only the residues fairly close within typically an eight angstrom circle around the position of interest are changed. And so if, if there were massive changes to the overall structure of the protein, we actually wouldn't be able to detect that. So while that's a very interesting question, it's not really something we can tackle with this approach and the main reason is that for the most part this is enough to capture what what happens um, and it's quite rare that you have a substantial reorganization that still is stable so typically what happens in most cases i mean well in, in most cases actually there's very very little impact which is also very easy to predict by keeping the structure essentially the same. And then in most cases where there is an impact, that impact really is a tip in the equilibrium between folded and unfolded. And so it means we have more of the unfolded structure and less of the, or confirmation and less of the folded confirmation. But the folded confirmation itself will look very much like it did before. So out of, structures that have been resolved of such point mutants they are often extremely similar and it's i mean in a sense it's almost frustrating because of course there will be some cases where there is a major change and those would be really interesting but actually they are so rare that it's sort of you know putting a ton of effort on a problem where most of the time it just is, isn't even remotely within the solution to say oh we will try all the possible confirmations and and see you know whether it changes 
And no, I mean, usually it just doesn't. It can happen, absolutely. But it's just really rare. And mostly it's that either nothing changes, not even stability-wise, or when something changes, then it's sort of a tip in the equilibrium. But the confirmation that is stable is still pretty much the same as before. And so often we don't even store those structures because if you have a protein that's a thousand residues and then you do that, you know, a thousand positions times 19, that generates a lot of structures. And then if you do that sort of in, you know, 10 different projects, it just generates a lot of, of, of models that hardly anybody would ever look at. If, of course, we, especially then if we get to the point of, of having those tested in the lab, then, you know, we might say, oh, let's look at this and see, can we get something out of it? Or if, for example, there is a situation where we we have um, a residue close to a catalytic site or a sort of known salt bridge, then it might become more interesting to look at that model specifically and find out, is there actually a mechanistic explanation beyond loss of stability, but really on the molecular level that we can provide? And then we generate um, atom level detailed structures and actually keep them and look at them. But for the most part, we focus on the delta delta G and pretty much on whether is it, if it's sort of below two kilocals per mole, we say this is well tolerated. And at least in human cells, it does not appear to have a major impact. And when you get to sort of above two to three kilocals per mole, then suddenly the whole degradation machinery appears to kick in and degrade a lot more of this protein. That's at least what we see in experiments. And that's also when we tend to see a much bigger impact in terms of pathogenicity. Okay, that's that's really, really interesting. And um, it sounds like this delta-delta-G thing is, is quite important. So let's maybe explain what it is and maybe even start with delta-G and then move to delta-delta-G. Sure. So the... Delta G, very briefly, is the folding energy of the protein. So it's the change between the energy of the unfolded conformation. So essentially just the, you know, the, the spaghetti version of the protein, just at one long sequence and the folded conformation and the energy that has. And typically for proteins that adopt a well-folded conformation, this gap is quite substantial. So it's like... 50, 70, even more kilocals per mole. And this is, we think this is what the protein needs to actually efficiently adopt that folded conformation. If there were just tiny differences, it might be really hard to sort of find that minimum. If you've ever seen an illustration of a folding funnel, the folded conformation is what we see at the bottom of that. And the unfolded conformations, there's very many of them. They're all those thingies at the top. Just to make it clear, um, the, the G in delta G is the Gibbs free energy. That's yes, what we're yes, talking about. Thanks. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so once that is the folding energy of that protein. And then in principle, each each variant, each point mutant also has its own folding energy. And what we calculate, actually, there is no there is, as far as I'm aware, no program that's really any good at calculating folding energies or predicting folding energies. So that's still an open challenge. By that, you mean like a program that would take a structure and just calculate its delta G? 
or like pr predict the delta g without without having the folded structure i mean mainly from sequence that would be sort of the the big issue but yes even even from the structure so certainly when you give rosetta a structure yes it's going to give you a score in rosetta units but this score um is dependent on many things including like the size of that protein and it doesn't really correlate with the Gibbs energy. Why is it hard to predict? Is it because it's dependent like on the context, on the environment? That might be one component. Yes, for example, we don't have any water as solvent, but the main thing is, I think, is um, differences in the relative weights of, the, I mean, there's many components to these energy calculations that we do. And to do the delta g really well we would need them all to be in perfect in the perfect balance the way they are in nature and it appears we have not nailed that balance yet and so if you're wondering well how can you have any hope at getting the, getting the delta delta g right if you're saying the delta g itself that you start from so the delta delta g is the difference between the delta g of the wild type and the delta g of the mutant and so the reason why we trust the delta delta g a lot more actually than any attempt at getting the delta g the folding energy right is that all those mistakes we make while calculating the delta g we make them on both sides you know we make the same mistake in the mutant and in the wild type and so those mistakes they subtract out so what we're left with is really just those effects that are due to that particular point mutation and so those we we trust more and we also see that they often correlate well with um, experimental data. Right. So if you like expand delta delta G, then the free energy gives free energy of the unfolded protein almost cancels out, right? As assuming yeah, like exactly. the, that point mutation doesn't change it drastically. And so you effectively just subtracting the free energies of the mutated, mutated and unmutated protein. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, say if you had a wild-type protein that has a folding energy of, say, 75 um, kilocalls per mole, and then maybe your mutant has 72, then that 3 that you get as the gap, that we can calculate well, because that typically is very much due to also those local changes. But getting to the absolute values of the folding energies, um, that, that still remains a challenging problem. So is is this calculation, it, it just takes in the structure, so Rosetta can do that using the predictions from both Rosetta and AlphaFold? That, exactly. I mean, that that's the thing that as, as part of this, um, this paper that we've been working on. So we have been doing this for a long time, starting from crystal structures, and well, a long time being a couple of years, you know, but still. And then now as AlphaFold came out, because for many uh, proteins of interest to especially human health, there is no structure. So maybe sometimes there's a rat structure, so you can use that if the sequence is similar enough, but often there just isn't even a similar structure. And so we have tried to use homology models at some point. Works sometimes, but certainly not always. And so we were very, you know, interested to see. Well, can we do this with AlphaFold structures or AlphaFold models? And indeed, we can. So it works basically as well as with crystal structures. 
But g generally, when the crystal structure is available, is it regarded as the gold standard? I suppose it still is regarded as the gold standard in the field, but really we have not seen a difference in performance. So if you know, if you were to write a pipeline and you would say for the sake of consistency, I'm just using all the alpha fold structures, even if there's a crystal structure available, that would be okay, I think. I mean, then, you know, then of course you come to the more specific cases like, oh, maybe there are alternative confirmations. And that's something that for now, AlphaFold can't necessarily tell you. It's certainly not something it's it's optimized for. And then, then it becomes very interesting again to go back to the crystal structures or the PDB and see are there multiple confirmations of this protein? And is it that, well, this particular change has an impact in one confirmation, but not in the other? And so that's something where, again, you know, going back to the experimental structures will be very interesting. And that, at least for now, AlphaFold can, cannot give you any information about. So my impression from, from what, what you're saying is that now we can calculate this delta delta G and we can, can calculate it for many more proteins that uh, were able before just because we're no longer dependent on the crystal structure but you know we can work with anything that alpha fold 2 can fold right and uh, so how is this problem solved then or like what what are the next steps that's a good point so i mean one one aspect is that and maybe that's something where we were fairly lucky with the things we've been focusing on so far but um I imagine this has come up before that AlphaFold has this score that tells you, oh, is that prediction reliable or not? And so we only trust also the Delta Delta G predictions for regions where that score is high. If that score drops to the lower values that are by the AlphaFold team themselves considered unreliable, then then we again are back in a situation where basically, I mean, this is the same as not having a structure because this is just, well, there is some confirmation, but it isn't really one that we can trust. And so again, those delta strategies we can't um, work with. That's one aspect that's clearly still missing, but it sort of goes back to the broader aspect of essentially, you know, that's that structural component is missing, is not there. And so that's why we can't do the calculation. It has certainly become um, feasible to generate a lot more delta delta Gs now. So in that, it's certainly a, a big part of the problem is solved. And for those regions that um, have the low reliability scores, one of the questions that that's being discussed in the community in general is, well, maybe these are disordered regions in the first place. and um, there, it's quite unlikely that single changes have such a massive effect on stability. And so we might not get very far with delta delta G calculations anyway. And do you have any thoughts or insights about how this, you know, impacts the um, diagnosis or or maybe even cure of, of, of these diseases that are caused by these mutations? So for diagnosis, whenever you are in a situation where you have, that's still fairly academic, you have sort of a collaboration with, you know, people like us that are interested in and able to do these calculations, then I think it it's a big boost because it just gives us access to, so 
well, it, it enables these calculations for so many more proteins. So that's quite cool. Um, in general, if you talk about sort of diagnosis on the clinical level, there basically you open a whole new can of worms because until now it's only in, so ClinVar is the biggest database that collects information about, oh, this variant has been observed in a person and if there is information on whether the person thinks it's benign or pathogenic or we don't know, then that's going to be added. And so in, in all of those classifications for now, computational evidence has a fairly weak position. So if you've done tissue culture experiments, that's great and that they, they will consider as, you know, as, as strongly indicative of whether something is pathogenic or not. But if, if you've done a computational prediction, even if it has a sky high delta delta G, that would still be like, yeah, but well, that's just a prediction. So for now, you know, that that's maybe more of a sort of, yeah, either societal or, or at least um, maybe sort of medical community discussion that might be coming up and we're not the only people who, who would be interested in giving that more weight. So there's also a lot of ongoing work that you may have come across that's not based on structures, but based on um, evolutionary analysis of multiple sequence alignments. And that also correlates really well with um, whether variants are pathogenic or not. And so in, out of that um, community, some papers have actually already come out that quite boldly state, well, if you were using our methods, you would be better at classifying, you know, whether a variant is pathogenic or not. And you wouldn't have so many variants that are classified as of unknown consequence or unknown significance. So the short term is VUS, and that's the biggest pool by far. That's like 80% of ClinVar is, we don't know what the consequences are, variant of unknown significance. And if you could integrate methods like delta delta g and like um, the evolutionary sequence analysis based on the msas there's probably a lot more variants that you could add information to but this has not reached sort of the you know the minds of at least the part of the clinical community that is is making these decisions so i imagine something along those lines will happen but it's still taking some time and of course, it, I mean, it is, it is a tricky question because if you look at a benchmark set and you say, oh, but now I have a better area under my rock curve. Well, that's great. But if on the other hand, you're a clinical geneticist and you stand there with a person that is carrying a particular variant and you want to advise them to, you know, have regular screenings is maybe one thing, but say have preventive surgery or take some medication to reduce their risk then you do want to be very sure, as, as sure as you can be. So I understand that this is a huge responsibility. And, you know, then the big question becomes, is it better to say we don't know? Or is it maybe better to say, well, we don't have any experimental data, but we have these predictive models that say this is likely problematic or that say this is likely fine. So I would err on the side of having and then providing more information but I'm certainly not a trained clinical geneticist in any way, and I can only imagine that this is a quite difficult situation. That's been very interesting. Um, thanks, Emily, so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.